Good morning, church. What an incredible blessing to sing of those truths about our Lord and consider the reality of this vision that we've seen the last couple of weeks in the book of Revelation. We continue that study this morning. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Revelation chapter 6 this morning. I want to provide a little bit of context for where we are in this story. Kind of bring us up to speed. We've had some summer vacations and travel and whatnot. So the Apostle John is on the island of Patmos. He's in exile there. And as he's there, Jesus appears to him in a vision. And he tells John to write words down in a book and give that book to the seven churches of Asia Minor. He does this first through the actual letters in chapters 2 and 3 that he writes to those churches. But then that vision continues as he begins to unveil what's happening in this vision and he sends those to the churches as well. That's what we have in the book of Revelation. This ongoing vision begins there in the throne room as we saw in chapter 4. As we see God, Yahweh, the Lord, in all of his glory, sitting on his throne in heaven. And then in chapter 5 last week, we saw that in God's right hand was a scroll. And that scroll contained God's plan to bring judgment For all sin, to answer evil and unrighteousness for all time. It also contained his ultimate plan to complete the redemption of his people, the church. And it includes his plan to execute his sovereign will to make all things new in the restoration of all things. But there was a problem, as we saw last week, because none was found who was worthy to open that scroll. And so John, in this vision, began to weep loudly. But then one of the 24 elders that were around the throne said to him, weep no more. Why? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah that we just sang about, the one who is the root of David, is also the lamb who was slain. And he has conquered sin and death. And he is worthy to open the scroll because of what he accomplished on the cross and his resurrection three days later. And so then there was this fantastic display of worship in heaven. And we sang about part of that in that song that we just sung. As the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb and worship Him. They're joined by the myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels in heaven. And then they too are joined, as we're told, by every single creature and every single thing even in all of creation that bows and worships the worthiness of the Lamb. That's where we ended our time last week at the end of chapter 5. Now, in chapter 6, Jesus begins to break the seals on the scroll and begins to open the scroll. 
As we learned last week, this scroll has seven seals on it. In chapter 6, we're only going to see six of them. The seventh happens at the beginning of chapter 8. And this morning, what I want us to do is focus our time this morning on just the first four of these seals. These first four seals are more popularly known in our culture, almost iconically, as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so follow along in your copy of the scriptures as we read verses 1 through 8 of Revelation chapter 6. Church, this is God's word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by by wild beasts of the earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have the privilege of gathering and singing as a church family of the worthiness of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful, too, that we get to hold in our book your breath, your own word to us. And we're thankful, Father, that you've sovereignly orchestrated through your Spirit to give the Apostle John this revelation and to have it recorded in the Scriptures for us today so that we can learn more about you and be transformed by its truth. So we ask, Father, that you would do that this morning. God, I ask that you would help me to remain anchored to your word. Lord, if I say anything that is out of line with your word, may it fall on deaf ears and exist no more. But Father, that which is in accord with your word, may it be driven by your spirit to the recesses of our soul and life. May we be changed by it. Help us to read this, Father. Help us to understand this through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the good news of Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection for us. And Father, may you mature our church and prepare us for what tribulation and persecution 
may lie in the future for us so that we would glorify you and be faithful to you to the bitter end. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've limited our focus this morning to these first four seals because they share an unmistakable parallelism across them. And they are quite different from the next three seals as we get to them. All four of these seals share a great deal of commonality. All of them are, first of all, opened by Jesus. As we mentioned last week, he is the only one who is worthy. He's the only one who balances the scales. He's the only one who's weighty enough to be able to open this because of what he did on the cross for us and rose three days later. So Jesus opens all of them. He, he breaks the seals. And when he breaks each one, there is a living creature that calls out with a loud voice, Come. This is not something that he calls to John, come and see. This is something that he calls to the horse and the rider to come forth, come out and do your work. We were introduced to these four living creatures back in chapter 4. One was like an ox, one was like a lion, one had the face of a man, and one was like an eagle in flight. And we don't, we're not told here which creature corresponds to which seal, but each seal has one of these four living creatures calling out, come, when Jesus breaks the seal. Also, in each seal, after John sees and hears the living creatures say, come, as we said, a horse and a rider come out. Each of the, riders have a, each of the horses have a different color. There's a, a white horse and then a red horse, a black horse, and then a pale horse. And then each of the riders are described differently as well. And so... Uh, all, of, all four horses are different in color, and, and all four riders are described differently, but even with that, there is a commonality between them, both in how they're introduced from the four living creatures and in the fact that there is one horse and one rider for each of these seals. One final commonality between all four of these seals is that the end result of the horse and the rider coming out is a corresponding effect on earth. Something happens down here as a result of each of these seals being broken and the horse and the rider coming out in John's vision. And the result in each of these cases is some sort of judgment from God that results in tribulation on earth for mankind. In order, we will see military conquest civil unrest and murder, economic collapse leading to famine, and ultimately the death of a fourth of the population of the earth in this vision. Now, this should lead us to consider what is the purpose of this part of the vision? What is this judgment? When does this judgment occur on the timeline of eternity? And probably most importantly, why is John given this specific vision? And why is it recorded for us in the scriptures? Why does Jesus have these seals and this judgment written down such that we have it today? What is the application to our lives? 
most Bible scholars will, that I've read at least in my study time, agree that what we have here in these first four seals are what we might call preliminary judgments or preliminary tribulation. They are judgments from God against sin that lead to tribulation in the lives of people on the earth, but they are not what we might call the great tribulation of the end times that will end with the return of Christ. Instead, these seals are describing suffering and tribulation that God's people and the rest of mankind, in fact, have been experiencing ever since the ascension of Christ and continue through the current church age and will continue until Christ returns. Speaking of the suffering resulting from these first four seals, Bible scholar and author George Eldon Ladd writes this, They are not part of the great tribulation itself, but are preparatory and preliminary to that great tribulation. Now, George Eldon Ladd is premillennial, believes that there is going to be a literal thousand-year reign. On the other side of the spectrum is author and scholar G.K. Beale. He is an amillennialist who believes that the millennium that we'll see uh, in Revelation chapter 20 referred to um, is symbolic in nature, or perhaps it is occurring now in heaven with the reign of God's people. He says this about the first four seals. The opening of the seals coincides with Christ taking up his position at the right hand of God so that the events depicted in the seals will begin to take place immediately, that is, immediately upon his ascension, and will continue until the Lord's return. So what do you know? We have Eldon and Ladd that agree with one another about this. And by the way, so do I. That these seven seven seals here represent real-life suffering, real-life trials and tribulation that have been occurring, are occurring, and will continue to occur until the end. But they are not the end in and of themselves. They are preliminary to the end. We also see this symbolized in how the scroll itself is actually opened. The scroll that Jesus has taken from the right hand of the throne of God that he holds now is not being opened in these verses. What's happening in these verses is that the seals are being broken. The scroll is rolled up. It has seven seals along the outer edge such that each of those seven seals must be broken in order for the scroll itself to be opened. As I read the scriptures, the scroll itself doesn't open until the beginning of chapter 8. But as each of these seals are broken, what happens in this vision is that it unleashes a description of suffering and tribulation that is both preliminary and preparatory, as Ladd says, to the great tribulation that is to come. Now, just because Ladd and Beale agree on this doesn't mean that everyone does. There are many today that believe that these seals do in fact represent the great tribulation of the end times and that the church is not here for them. 
The church isn't present for. They would say that the church has been raptured at this point and is in heaven represented by the 24 elders around the throne. But as we discussed last week, I personally don't find that interpretation of this text convincing. Because in this book that lays out so many of these details for us, it says absolutely nothing about the rapture. And as we discussed when we were in chapter 4 a couple of weeks ago, some will see in Jesus' invitation in chapter 4 verse 1 to John to come up here so that I might show you what must take place after this. Some see in Jesus' invitation to John to come up here a symbolic reference to the rapture such that the church is now gone and is not here during this time of tribulation but I just don't find that argument convincing besides the fact that the church is never never promised that she will not suffer tribulation and suffering in her day she is promised that the Lord will protect her through that but that protection is spiritual that even in the face of fierce tribulation and persecution the church will be protected spiritually So for our purposes this morning and the coming weeks, we're going to say that these seals refer to suffering and tribulation that has been experienced in the past by both the people of God as well as the rest of mankind, suffering and tribulation that continues today and will continue until the return of Christ, and that it is preliminary and preparatory for a future tribulation that will be similar in kind just a lot more intense. And we will see that intensification of tribulation as we continue in the chapters of Revelation to come, as we get to the trumpet judgments and then the bold judgments themselves. So what I want to do now is I want us to look at each of these riders and each of these horses a little bit more carefully so that we can try to understand what is being spoken of here. First seal is found in verses 1 and 2. John writes, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So who's this rider on the white horse? We've got two options available to us. Some will say that this is Jesus Christ. And they will say that because when we get to Revelation 19, which is the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, guess what he's riding? He's riding a white horse. Listen to Revelation 19, verse 11 and following. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. That should remind us of that vision of Jesus in chapter 1. With eyes are flaming like fire. And on his head are many diadems. In other words, a crown. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of the Logos of God. This is Jesus. And he's returning And so some have said that since Jesus is riding a white horse in Revelation 19 when he comes back, then it stands to reason that he's the one riding the white horse here in Revelation chapter 6. Plus, look at the rider. He's carrying a bow. Now, Jesus is never, we're never told that Jesus is carrying a bow anywhere else, 
but we are told that a sword is coming out of his mouth. Both of those could have reference symbolically to his intention and his plan to bring judgment when he returns. He's given a crown, and he's, he comes conquering and to conquer, John says. And both of these could be representative of the fact that he's given a crown because he's uh, king of kings, and he's conquering, he'll be a conquering king when he comes back as he sets up his earthly kingdom. And so some have said that this is Jesus. And that interpretation is biblically, def- biblically defensible and possible. I just don't hold to it. I don't find it convincing. So I prefer the other option, which is that this seal, like the other three, is a display of God's judgment through the rider and the horse that brings tribulation on the earth. The other three seals, as we get to them, are more obviously judgment that bring tribulation on the earth. And, and we've already noted the clear parallelism between all four of these seals, that they all seem to be very common in their nature. And so I'm more inclined to accept an interpretation that also sees this first seal as a reference to judgment and coming tribulation. So I understand this rider on the white horse to be symbolic of military conquest. He's got a bow. It's a weapon of war. He's given a crown, which is uh, symbolic of a nation, a, a, a body of people that is ruled, and he's bent on conquering. That's what he's told to do. Go out conquering and to conquer, which speaks of a military might being exercised against a people, conquering them. So what is this referring to? How would the original readers of John's letter have understood this? How would the early believers of Asia Minor in those churches, how would they have understood this first seal symbolizing the unleashing of military conquest? That their area of the world had been no stranger to military conquest since the beginning. Nine centuries earlier, it was the Assyrian Empire. They were conquered by the Babylonian Empire. In turn, the Babylonians gave way to the great Persian Empire. The Persians ultimately were defeated when Alexander the Great took over the Greek Empire, and they ruled the area for, for many years until the Roman Empire was birthed in Rome and began to take over the entire area. And the Roman Empire is still in power during the time in which John writes the book of Revelation. Nearly nine centuries of war and military conquest. Surely John's original readers would have seen in this first writer a symbolic reference to what had been happening in their lives and in their area of the world all along. But it hasn't been happening just in their area of the world and just in their time. The nine centuries leading up to the birth of Christ holds no monopoly on military conquest. In fact, we have seen an enormous amount of military activity and wars in the last single century itself. The First World War, we were told, was to be what? The war to end all wars. It wasn't. It led to 20 million deaths, 
But it wasn't the war to end all wars. 20 years later, we had World War II that resulted in 75 million deaths in the 40s. In the 50s, it was the Korean War. In the late 60s and early 70s, it was the war in Vietnam. 15 years after Vietnam, America began to fight in the desert, first in the Gulf War in Iraq and then in the global war on terror, terror, which began on 9-11 and continues to this day and is now the longest-running military combat theater in U.S. history. And isn't this what Jesus promised was going to happen? In his famous Olivet Discourse that's recorded in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus talks about things that are going to begin to happen as the world progresses towards its end. And he says one of the things that's going to happen is that we will experience tribulation throughout the earth. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8. Jesus answered his disciples and said, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear wars, hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, in the context of Matthew 24 and 25, part of what Jesus was doing here was answering the disciples' questions about when the temple in Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, because he kept talking about that, and they want to know when that is going to happen. And so the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, and so part of this prophecy of the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled in A.D. 70, but not all of it. And that fulfillment continues today, and it's promised to only get worse and worse and more intense before the end. And that is what is symbolized in this first rider, military conquest. The second seal we see in verses 3 and 4. Jesus opens the second seal. As a result of that, the second living living creature cries out, come, come. And what happens in verse 4, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And and he was given a great sword. So I take this rider and its source to symbolize murder. But it's a different kind of death than the one that results that comes as a result of war and military conquest. The first seal was symbolic of of military conquest. This seal has to do with civil unrest in society and the murdering of our fellow man. The removal of peace, we're told, and people slaying one another. That word slay there is a violent term in the Greek. It literally means the slaughtering of one another. So again, the church of John's day would have seen reference to this in their own time. And I believe that they also would have seen reference here to persecution and even martyrdom. Now we're going to get to martyrdom next week in the fifth seal, but, but I think they would have also seen reference to it here in the second seal as well. So this is something that was happening in their day, and of course it happens in our day as well. Civil unrest, 
a lack of peace, a, a removal of peace, and a removal of civility in society, an uptick in murder, all of which we need only to read our daily head times to, headlines to find examples of. And we're told that this will only intensify as we get closer to the end. The third seal in verses 5 through 6, Jesus opens the third seal. The third living creature cries out, come. And, and John says, and I looked and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Now just a word real quickly about the significance of the colors of the horses. I don't think there's any. I really don't think there's any significance to the colors. I don't think that we're meant to try to drive down and see what is the, what is the black horse represent and the red horse and why is the white horse representing this. I really don't think it means that. The horse in that society represented transportation and nothing more. And so that if this vision were to be given today, perhaps John would be said, you know, a sedan came out and then a pickup and then a, a Harley and then a sports car. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't be sitting here saying, oh, what does the sedan represent in this picture, right? And I think that's the danger with trying to interpret apocalyptic genre. And that's oftentimes the, the, the trouble that we get ourselves into and where we mess up with our eschatology when we look at these apocalyptic visions and these fantastic images that John has given here, and we try to look in our current society and we find something that, that roughly corresponds to that, and all of, before you know it, we begin drawing charts and maps and making predictions of the end of the world. And so I think we need to resist that urge and be reminded that John is using an earthly language to try and depict an unearthly reality here. And so it just happens to be a black rider, and this black rider is carrying something. He's carrying a pair of scales. He's given a, a pair of scales in his right hand. Now, the scales, as we talked about last week, were something that were used to measure out uh, grain and other goods in the marketplace so that you would know how much to pay for that grain or the goods. And then John says in verse 6, And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now what does this mean? Well, we've got to understand the cultural reference here. A quart of wheat, <coughs> excuse me, a quart of wheat <coughs> was a commonplace reference. It was a way of referring to what a man could eat in a single day. He would eat a quart of wheat. Uh, a denarius was the pay wage for a common laborer for a day, what one man would earn in a single day. And so what's happening here is that one quart of wheat is being sold for what a man would make in a single day. Now, if that's happening, what does that mean? That means that man's not going to be able to support his family. Right? He's only going to be able to make enough to buy from the marketplace what he's going to need to keep on living and work the next day. And so he would be forced, perhaps, to buy a much cheaper grain, which was barley. You can get three quarts of that for what you made in a day. And that itself was an exorbitant price for, for that grain as well. And so this is speaking of a time of astronomical inflation, 
Bible scholars tell us that these prices are 10 to 12 times higher for these grains than they normally would be in this day. Imagine that in your own family budget. Imagine paying 10 to 12 times your family's budget for food. None of us could afford to feed our families. And in that day, the only thing that could cause such incredible inflation of prices was a drastic decrease of the supply. So what we're talking about here is famine. So this third rider on this black horse represents both economic collapse and famine. Now, we've not experienced economic collapse in our day, perhaps economic turmoil or economic crisis. Sometimes it's inflation, sometimes it's recession, but it makes us wonder how much we can really count on economic stability in our world. But there are some places of the world where economic collapse is a reality. The economic collapse, like it is described here, and the economic collapse, like our country experienced in the Great Depression era, is a very real threat. Today, for example, right now, the country of Lebanon is on the brink of becoming a failed state. They've lost 90%. Their currency has lost 90% of its value. Imagine the inflation that results from that. Their government leaders have begun to abandon their posts, and it has left that country on the brink of anarchy. This is the sort of thing that we're told will continue and will intensify the nearer we get to the end. But, but notice here that there is some restraint with this judgment. As the voice that comes out from the midst of the four living creatures, which I believe to be the voice of Christ, and so Jesus is the one who tells this writer to set the, the, the price for wheat and barley and to, to bring about this famine. But he also says, don't touch the oil and the wine. Do not harm the oil and wine. So as this writer causes a famine in the land it's not a global famine and it doesn't affect everything you see wheat and barley were an annual crop it was harvested once a year every year and if you had a bad year that would be bad right that would be very bad but it wouldn't be the end of the world no pun intended because you would just harvest another crop next year you got a chance next year to try again with the wheat or the barley. But oil and wine were different. Oil came from olive trees. And of course, wine came from grapevines. And these were crops that took many, many years to cultivate. And so if there was a famine that wiped out all of the olive trees and wiped out all of the grapevines then that would represent acute devastation for years to come. And so although this is a severe famine that's referred to in this third seal, we see here a a display of mercy on the part of Jesus as he graciously restrains this rider from wreaking any more havoc than he would have otherwise. It is not unrestrained judgment Something that perhaps we might not be able to say as we continue unfolding the pages of Revelation. 
The fourth and the final seal that we'll deal with this morning is verses 7 and 8. Jesus opens the fourth seal. He breaks it. Uh, John hears the fourth living creature cry out, come. And then verse 8, I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death. So this rider has a name. His name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. Hades refers not to hell, but to the place of the dead. It refers to the grave. And so this fourth seal is a reference to death itself. And death and Hades are personified in John's vision. And the authority that they are given to wipe out a fourth of the earth is unimaginable. Now, I don't think that we are meant to try and quantify that. How could we quantify it anyway? What was a fourth of the population of the earth in John's day compared to a fourth of the population of our day? I don't think that we're meant to try to wrestle with the number there, but I think we are meant to see two things. First, we are meant to wrestle with the reality that death and Hades are given incredible authority to kill. With sword which reminds us of both the white horse and its military conquest and the rider on the red horse and that causes civil unrest and the murder of fellow men. They're also given the authority to kill through famine like the rider on the black horse. And then John adds two more, through pestilence or, or disease and by the wild beasts of the earth. So we're meant to wrestle with the fact that death and Hades personified here are given incredible authority to wreak havoc. But secondly, I think we're also meant to see here another example of merciful restraint. There's no avoiding the fact that death and Hades here carry with it some kind of connotation, some kind of satanic or demonic connotation. And so their bloodlust would not naturally end with a fourth of the population of the earth. Left unrestrained, they will continue to ride on until they have killed everyone, especially all of God's household. But they are restrained, and they're limited to a fourth. The question is, what or who restrains them? And who restrains them is Jesus himself. Look back at Revelation chapter 1. Towards the end of that chapter, as Jesus reveals himself to John, John writes in verses 17 and 18, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That is the right response to seeing the resurrected Christ as the conquering king. But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And look at this. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. And he has those keys because he died on a cross at Calvary and he rose three days later. His crucifixion and resurrection won him the keys of death and Hades. Now death and Hades do his bidding. And so we see God and Jesus demonstrating sovereign control over these four horsemen. And and at least in a couple of the cases, he limits or restrains their powers and their influence simply out of his mercy and grace. Now, what do we do with this passage? How are we to draw application from a passage of scripture like this to our lives? 
In order for us to begin to do that, we need to seek to understand how the original audience would have interacted with this text. Remember the purpose that we've talked about for the book of Revelation. The purpose is to equip God's people and to prepare them to persevere and remain faithful no matter how bad it gets as we near the end. To persevere through all of that. That's the purpose, to prepare and to persevere. So how do the judgments of these first four seals help with that? Well, John's readers would have immediately seen a reflection of their own suffering and their own tribulation in their time as, he see, as they see this tribulation and suffering arising from when Jesus breaks each of these first four seals. They would have seen this is happening in our own lives. War, civil unrest, murder, economic crisis, famine, disease, wild beasts, all things that God's people had experienced and were experiencing in John's time and would continue to experience until Jesus returns. And so what would be... What would the, the breaking of those first, fee, first uh, four seals, what would that have taught them about their own trials and suffering and tribulation in their own day? I think there's four lessons that they would have walked away with that we can walk away with as well. First, God is sovereign over tribulation. God is sovereign over this. And over everything that's going to come as it gets worse. When these seals are broken, the horse and the riders come out. Why? Because they're told to come out. And they don't come out until Jesus lets them out. He's the only one who can execute that. And he makes it happen. He gives them a job. And the job ultimately is to bring suffering and tribulation on the earth. But even if they are, as we talked about, demonic in origin in some way, it is clear that Jesus is in control. He breaks the seal. He gives them the job. And at least with a couple of them, he restrains them. He sets a boundary around what they're able to do. They aren't given free reign to wreak havoc. They are on a leash. And Jesus is holding the leash for each of these four horsemen. Now, the fact that God is sovereign over suffering and tribulation is a hard pill to swallow, especially when we talk about him being sovereign over suffering and tribulation, even for God's people. But church, hear me. That's the only way that the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty in this case is the only way to peace and to Comfort in a fallen world. The presence of suffering and tribulation in a fallen world is a reality that we must live with. It's part of living in a broken world. The question is, who's sovereign over it? If God is not sovereign over it, who is? Who's at the helm when suffering and tribulation come in life? And whoever it is, if it is not God, is it possible that he is more powerful than God? You see, when we reduce God to something smaller than he is, that is not more comforting but less. No, God is sovereign over everything, including suffering and tribulation, friend. 
And that is good news because it means he's got a purpose in that. And his purpose is either to grow our faith, to glorify himself, or both. And so as John's readers read this, they would be comforted in the midst of their own trials that God was holding the leash of any evil that was touching them. And he's got a good grip, and he's not going to let it go any further than he intends to accomplish his purposes. And so like that original audience, we should be encouraged to trust in God's sovereignty even when his sovereign plan for us includes experiencing suffering and tribulation. Secondly, tribulation is going to continue for God's people. Again, my reading of Revelation precludes the removal of the church at this point. Instead, the church is present for this and as it gets worse. I believe this in part because I see no clear evidence of the removal of the church in Revelation. Now, I do believe that there's going to be a rapture. It's right there in 1 Thessalonians 4, and so we'll have to deal with it, but we'll deal with it later when I think it's going to happen much later as Revelation unfolds. But at this point in the story, the church, in my opinion, has not been removed and experiences these very same tribulations that are referred to in these verses up to the point of Jesus' return. But I also believe this because, as we know, nowhere in Scripture are God's people promised that they will, be, they, they will escape from suffering and tribulation and persecution. In fact, Jesus himself prayed for us in the in the high priestly prayer on the night that he was betrayed in John 17. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so just as the church has always experienced suffering and tribulation along with the rest of the world, we will continue to experience the same. And it will only get worse and it will only get more intense as we see the end approaching. God does promise to protect us, his people, the church. He does promise to protect us. But that protection is always spiritual and not always physical. Not always physical. And so sometimes that protection is spiritual and that protection will be there regardless of how bad it gets. Even in the face of fierce persecution, even resulting and in martyrdom, as we'll see in the fifth seal next week. Thirdly, John's original readers would have learned to let the suffering and tribulation of the present day equip them and prepare them for the tribulation of tomorrow. Again, one of the main purposes of the book is to prepare God's people for suffering and persecution on an order that no man has ever seen. The church is going to be here for this coming time of tribulation, and he intends for his people to persevere through it, to conquer, as Jesus exhorted the seven churches in the seven letters. And what better way to learn how to persevere through suffering and tribulation for tomorrow than to learn how to do that in the furnace of affliction of today? God is sanctifying us today, church through the suffering and tribulation that he allows in our life today and in our time. 
so that we, the church, will be prepared to persevere when it gets much worse, when the great tribulation comes. Now, you might say, well, I I really don't think I'm going to be here when the great tribulation comes in the end times. To that, I would respond, how can you be so sure? Christ's return is imminent. And so this great tribulation could begin at any moment. It could start tomorrow. And so don't be so sure that you won't be here for it. But secondly, I would respond, even if you are not here, perhaps your children will be, or your children's children. And so your sanctification today, formed in the furnace of today's affliction, is building a legacy of perseverance, a, a reservoir of sanctifying wisdom and faithfulness for the generations that follow after you. And so let today's tribulation prepare you and the future church of Jesus Christ for the tribulation to come. And then fourthly and finally, they would be reminded to trust in Jesus Christ both for rescue from judgment and for courage in the face of tribulation in the present and in the future. The early believers knew that their only hope for rescue from future judgment of sin was faith in Jesus Christ. As they read John's letter about the the present tribulation that they knew was leading to a final tribulation, an end-time tribulation, they recognized that this ultimately was God's judgment on the sin of man. And it would eventually lead to the great white throne judgment where every single person will have to give an answer for their life. And they will be judged for their rebellion against sin. And so they knew that their only hope to escape that judgment was through faith in Christ. He is the lion who became a lamb, who was slain before the foundation of the world, who died on a cross, willingly laid down his life for his own, so that his own would be able to return to him in faith and therefore escape judgment and one day enter into the eternal rest of his kingdom. So for the believers of John's day and for the believers present in this very room, this reminder of tribulation coming from the throne of God on the sins of man, the pouring out of God's wrath in a sense on the rebellion of man to punish unrighteousness. When we see this, Friend, it is a reminder to us that Jesus bore the wrath of God for us. He took the punishment that we deserved. He bore the weight of our sin. He he bore the wrath of God in our place. He died, he was buried, and he rose again three days later for our justification. And so there is a a part of us that, that ought to rejoice When we see a passage like this, because it reminds us that we who deserve judgment have been granted by faith in Christ amnesty, and there is no judgment coming for us. Praise God for that, only by the grace of God. But if you're here this morning, you have not trusted in Christ to save you and to rescue you, then Friend, this picture of tribulation and judgment on earth should be a very cold reminder to you 
that judgment is coming. Where every person will have to give an account for every action, every word that we've said, every thought that we've thought. And if Christ is not there to bear the wrath of God for you, friend, you will bear it yourself. And you cannot bear it. And so I beg of you, I beg of you, come to Christ in faith. Don't trust in your own ability to escape this. You can't. You cannot trust in Christ alone. The lamb was slain. He gave up his life to rescue sinners like you and I. Will you come home? Will you come to faith in Christ, trust in him? And church, if this stuff is true, and it is, and this stuff is coming, and it is, This thought ought to compel us to take the gospel to the people around us who are dying, literally going to hell without it. We take the gospel, this good news, to them while we still have time so that they might come to Christ in faith and trust in him and likewise escape this judgment. Let's pray. Our Father, we, again, are humbled in the face of such prophetic and apocalyptic images, we recognize that there is suffering and tribulation in the world. But Lord, it is no comfort to us to think of you as being not powerful enough to control it. And we are so grateful that the testimony of Scripture doesn't tell us that. Instead, it tells us that you are in control. And even though we don't understand your ways and perhaps don't even agree with them, you are God and we are not. You've got a reason for what you do. And we are so thankful that even the suffering that does touch us in this life is on a leash and it will never go any further than you intend to accomplish your purposes. And so we ask, Father, that you would use every bit of tribulation and trial in our life to bring about a practical holiness in us, a sanctification to make us look more like Jesus so that you might be glorified in us and through us. And Lord, we cry out, Maranatha, we ask for Jesus to return so that there is an end to this world of sin and suffering and we will be ushered into the eternal state. We're thankful for that, Father. And we're thankful that Jesus is the one who made it happen. We're thankful for the cross. We're thankful for the empty tomb and the cross that is bare. We're thankful that he is at your right side at this very moment. And he holds in his hand the scroll that you have given to him. And we long and wait for him to open it and bring an end to this world of suffering and sin. In the meantime, Lord, help us to be faithful. And help us to take the message of the gospel to those around us so that they too can experience new life in Christ and be restored to you, recreated to be your worshipers, and look forward to being reunited with you one day in heaven. We love you, Father. Thank you for this good news. We pray this in His name, Jesus' name. Amen.